worship this morning is taken from a colleague of mine, uh, the Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed. The central task of a religious community is to unveil the bonds that bind each of us together. There is a connectedness, a relationship discovered amid the particulars of our own lives and the lives of others. Once felt, It inspires us to act, to stand up, to let our voices be heard against the injustices in our community and in our world. It is the church that assures us that we are not struggling for justice on our own, but as members of a larger community. The religious community is essential, for alone our vision is too narrow to see all that must be seen and our strength too limited to do all that must be done. Together, our vision widens and our strength is renewed. Come, let us worship together. We light the chalice to acknowledge the specialness of our time together. With words from Albert Thielander, we hallow this time together by kindling the lamp of our heritage. Our opening hymn is on page 171, and uh, this hymn has really a lot of significance to me. It is the South African national anthem. I invite you, as willing and able, to stand as we sing this. Um, To give you a little bit of history behind this and why it ended up in our hymnal was um, the Cape Town South African congregation which I serve has been there for 150 years and the UUA when they were putting together the hymnal had the foresight to make sure that they included this song which actually was written right after apartheid was um, diminished and so it has a lot of meaning to the South Africans as their love for Africa. So thank you for joining. And we will, I will not try and teach you the South African words, but we will sing it in English.
I invite you to enter into a moment of silent meditation, but particularly as you ponder upon those who are struggling, those who, immigrants who have been separated from their children, those individuals who a couple of weeks ago whose lives were taken because of gun violence, and also those among you who are in need of support and encouragement, and perhaps even in your own life. So take this moment, these moments, to silently ponder and meditate. Just join me in a word of prayer as we ponder upon your own feelings and also these prayers that have been offered and these concerns that have been offered. Great Spirit, as we gather that day, we are mindful of our place in the world and in this community. And for those who have joys and concerns, we ask a special blessing to be upon them. I pray for this community. They might continue to reach out and support and care for one another in the manner in which they have. Help us this day to enjoy our time together, to fill of thy love and what it means to be in community.
Think back to junior high school. Or think of anybody today you know who's in junior high school or has been recently. I think of Gordon Vars when I consider that because he and I both loved that age group. I, to my great surprise, I fell in love with junior high wrestling. Did you know that in Ohio there are 16 weight classes in junior high wrestling? Think how much the difference is. This is where kids, especially boys, will hit their growth spurt or not. There are 16 weight classes, 80 pounds to 250 pounds. And many schools fill every one of those weight classes. I love that sport partly because it's so ancient, but also because it's so individual. You are out there by yourself putting your own skills on the line, mano a mano. You can't blame your teammates. You can't kind of hold back. It's you and the other guy out there. And I would admire those kids so much, especially the ones in the lower weight classes who were often very wiry and strong, but little shrimps. But they were out there, and their points counted for the team just as much as the heavyweights. And to see them do that, to put themselves on the line and get through it, whether they won or not, or got pinned, no matter what, they had had the guts to go out there and do it. That brings to mind Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech, which many of you have probably heard. The title of Brene Brown's book that I just read, it's not her most recent one, but it's called Daring Greatly, and it comes from his Man in the Arena speech. By the way, I apologize for the exclusively male perspective. These were Teddy Roosevelt's words in 1910, and that's the way it would have been said. So try to look past that to get to the actual message. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. The man who tries valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but the man who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails daring greatly. That's the end of his quote. Now, I think of wrestling as such a very public forum to test yourself. You learn that life goes on, whether you win, lose, or get pinned. Life goes on. And that's why I admired those kids and perhaps even envied them a little bit, especially when I think of the things I've written but not submitted the times I've hidden behind a roll, behind some armor, a facade, just not to let myself be vulnerable. The times I've disengaged from something I really wanted and needed just to avoid feeling like a failure. Also in junior high, I coached junior high girls track back when that was a new thing. Title IX came along and 
a bunch of girls came to me and said, they said if we can find a coach, we can have a team. Well, I didn't know anything about track. All I knew was you start a race with swimmers, take your mark, because I had done some swimming. But, uh, but I learned, and we had a team, and the team still exists. And at first it was a problem because the boys didn't want to share their track. Now, by the time my sons got into running, it was sweet to see both the girls and the boys smelled like atomic bomb. They both cheered each other, they'd put out the hurdles and they'd run hurdles for the girls and then hurdles for the boys, or vice versa. And they all were on the team together. It was a big change and I loved it. But it reminded me that even in a race, the people who are labeled DNF, you all know what that means? Did not finish. They're ahead of all those people on the sidelines. They engaged. Whether they won, came in last, were somewhere in the middle, or even didn't finish, they're ahead of all those, those other folks. Brene Brown researches shame and vulnerability, and I learned about her right down in Fessenden Hall when somebody had the smarts to get together a bunch of us to watch her TED Talk, which is one of the top watched TED Talks ever. And then she did another one a couple years later that is almost as much about talking about shame and vulnerability. She starts from the idea that we're all wired to need intimacy in order to live fully. She calls that wholehearted lives. And yet, to achieve intimacy, we have to let ourselves be vulnerable. You can't keep your armor on and achieve intimacy. You have to find people you trust and then trust them with your secrets, your secret self. And that involves emotional exposure, risk, uncertainty. It means going into the arena on a very personal level with your real face, not just your game face. And that may lead to success or not. The important thing is showing up and letting ourselves be seen, ourselves. Brown has interviewed thousands of people who've learned to accept the or else times with resilience, shame resilience, she calls it. Brings me to another junior high moment, um, a young woman whose uh, parents are occasional attenders, they're members here, but occasional attenders of our church, and she was in uh, The Little Mermaid at Stanton last year, and they're dancing in line, and her shoe comes off. And she looked at it, kind of shook her head, and went on dancing, and when it was over, she went and picked it up and walked off stage. I could never have done that. I would have been up in a puddle, or I would have pretended it wasn't mine, or. I would have come up with some, some way to avoid the whole issue. No, that never happened. Uh -uh. Well, here's Brene Brown's words to close. Vulnerability is not knowing victory or defeat. It's understanding the necessity of both. It's engaging. It's being all in. Vulnerability is not weakness. The uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure we face every day are not optional. Our only choice is a question of engagement. Our willingness to own and engage with our vulnerability determines the depth of our courage and the clarity of our purpose. 
The level to which we protect ourselves from being, being vulnerable is a measure of our fear and our disconnection. When we spend our lives waiting till we're perfect or bulletproof before we walk into the arena, we ultimately sacrifice relationships and opportunities that may not be recoverable. We squander our precious time. We turn our backs on our gifts, those unique contributions that only we can make. Perfect and bulletproof are seductive, but they don't exist in real human experience. We must walk into the arena, whatever it may be, a new relationship, an important meeting, showing our creative process, having a difficult family conversation. We have to do those with courage and the willingness to engage. Rather than sitting on the sidelines and hurling judgment and advice, much easier to do that, we must dare to show up and let ourselves be seen. It's good to be here. <laughs> As I look out here, I see so many faces that um, I took with me on my journey to Cape Town. And so many times in these months, I've reflected upon each of you in one way or another and the gift that you gave to me. And so I'd kind of like to first kind of tell you about South Africa, because everyone on asks, asks that question, and um, tell you a little bit about um, my experience there. And actually, the title and the theme for the sermon actually came from uh, an experience in South Africa. Um, but um, I've now been in Cape Town serving as their uh, interim minister for over six months. Uh, my partner, Jerry, who's here today. <laughs> um, we made the journey in December, and um, it was just a, a wonderful thing. Obviously, we left the snow and ice of uh, Ohio and uh, landed in their summer. So it was uh, quite warm and uh, a, great, a great experience. The congregation is about 75. Um, I think we've got it down to that. When I first arrived, there was a big book about this thick, and they said, well, these are everybody, but we're really not sure where they're at completely. <laughs> um, and as we worked through that, we got it down to about 75 that had at least been to church in the last year and maybe donated some money. So, um, but there's many more that we call friends of, of Cape Town Unitarians. Um, the church itself has a very interesting history. Um, the Reverend Faw, back in 1867, was studying um, to be a Dutch Reformed minister. And at the time, the Dutch Reformed church was similar to the Catholic church here in South Africa, um, one of the largest institutions. And so he had to give a sermon in front of a board that would say, okay, you know, you're ready to become uh, a minister. And he took his sermon from the Edict of Torda, which this year we're celebrating our 450 years, which is where, uh, in Transylvania, where we really had our beginning as uh, Unitarians. And the thing about it, what he really concentrated in was the fact that he really honestly believed that people should be able to come together in a free faith that supports them and they can choose to worship God or being or nature in any way that they s see fit to do that. 
So he preached this sermon all about a, a liberal religion and a free place where people could come together. And of course, his governing board said, this is blasphemy. There is no way you'll ever be ordained. And so he had a following with him that came to hear him preach. And he said, okay, well, I'm just going to start my own free liberal church. And within a couple of years, he connected with the British Unitarians and he established the Unitarian Church of Cape Town based on the fact that people could come together in a community and be supported and, and believe what they wanted to believe, but yet that the strength was in the community. As you go through and as I went through and have, have traced their history, you find it very interesting because very active as most Unitarians are in social action, um, they've had some interesting characters. They had the Reverend Victor Carpenter, who as a young Unitarian minister during the 60s, um, had the crazy notion of what it would be like to go to a country where liberal religion really isn't allowed. And, if, and there was a church there, and it was a Cape Town Unitarians, and they were looking for a minister. So he packed up his young wife and his small children, and this was in 1962, and he went to South Africa. And he helped that congregation to open their doors during apartheid to everybody, regardless of the color of their skin. And one of their several stories, but one of them that I like was the fact that he um, would collect money that he would then go and give to the attorneys that were defending the people that had spoken up against apartheid. And so he was in England and he was trying to find a way to bring back 30 pounds that had been given to him to give. And uh, he lined his suitcase and on top of, he put a, a paper and then he put all these slippers. And when he got to um, Johannesburg and he was going through customs, um, the custom agent said, well, what do you do with all these slippers? And he said, I smell them. And, <laughs> and the custom agent said, Right on through. <laughs> and um, he had this really wonderful dry sense of humor. There's another story I share with you. Is he was being, uh, the officials were coming up to him and saying, we know that you are helping and we're watching you. And they said, and what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm saving souls. And then he turned and he said, let me see the, lift up your foot. Let me see your soul. <laughs> so... Um, and I share that with you because this is kind of the flavor of the people that I serve with. They have a wonderful sense of humor, um, a wonderful history. And, and one of the things that uh, everyone, you know, asking about is, oh, how's the water situation? I'll just basically say that we had a major crisis. We're getting through it. Um, the Unitarians step forward and help people do a water audit of their home to look for ways in which they could save money. Uh, and save water, and once again became kind of leaders in the community as they have been for 150 years. So, you know, this past weekend they had snow on the mountains, they had hail in the valleys, the reservoirs are over 50% ahead of what they were last year. So, um, the news is that we won't have a day zero in 2019. So, um, but, um, the experience to serve in a congregation of multicultural, multiracial is just a wonderful opportunity for me to really 
learn about ministry and also learn about how do you pe- bring people together. And, um, and the theme that Secrets and the Elephants is because one of the things that I've learned is that secrets turn into elephants in the room. And there was a big secret that the congregation had had around money. Go figure, do the Unitarians ever have anything around money? (laughs) Um, And it was a simple case that no one had really taught them about policies and procedures of how you handle things. And so um, there was some money that was disappearing. And they came together and they took that secret that had become an elephant in the room and really came up with a way in which they could solve it. And so, um, secrets and elephants, you know, a secret is that something that we hold dear and sometimes secrets are really, um, we need to hold them and other times they do damage. And, you know, when I was preparing this talk for you today, I thought back upon this congregation and, you know, I remember that I did some work for you before I went to South Africa and so I was very much aware of, of the pain and the struggle you're going through. And so when we talk about secrets and elephants today, I really want to honor you because as I followed your progress and followed the journey that you went on and the sacrifice you made, you really provided a kind of a model for how a congregation can handle an elephant in the room. You know, you had a big elephant in the room. <laughs> Probably filled the whole room. And sometimes it might have felt like a circus. But, but um, you know, it's always hard when you leave, a, a minister leaves who you really adore. And another minister comes in and for whatever reason, that doesn't work out. And, um, and so, you know, as I watched what you went through as a congregation and as groups came together, you know, one of the first things that you did is you actually verified that there really was an elephant in the room. And, and as I go through this and share this with you, I want you to really think back because I think in sharing this with you, it's my way of praising you for a job well done. And letting you know that this past year has been a journey for you, but that, that great things are in store because you've done the work. Um, so you verified it, you know, and how did you do that? You did a reality check and you began to talk to people and, and listen to their concerns and you acknowledge then, okay, we have this elephant. You know, what are we gonna do with it? And, and you didn't say, oh, you know, I think this is gonna go away like we sometimes do with those elephants in the room. You sat with it and you worked with it and then you, you know, you looked at, oh, the timing, you know, oh, what about the timing? And you thought, you know what? We must act on this. So you didn't postpone dealing with this elephant. And then you begin to make a plan and you, you know, you still move forward with a, a, 
a search team that really did the work, that kept things together. And people stepped up as I would read, you know, the worship associates stepped in and handled worship. And each of you in the things that you did stepped up. And you never lost track of the direction that you wanted to go, which was the importance of finding a settled minister that could lead you. I applaud you because, you know, along this path, I'm sure people got discouraged, people got disappointed, conversations were said, disagreements were made. But as I look out here and see you and feel your love and know you, I applaud you because you were brave and you were willing to have the difficult conversations all the way from the board to the individuals. And the reason why I'm talking about this today is because, you know, it's almost like um, my being here is somewhat of a closure because I felt as if I was on this journey with you because I felt your pain, I felt your concern, and I felt your love. And I wanted you to know how good you are, how right you are, and to applaud you. Many congregations would have thrown in the towel and many people would have said, oh gee, and there would have been divisions, and and I'm sure that you had some of that. But look at around and look at the people that are here and even the people that aren't here. You survived. And so as we think about elephants in the room, you've done such a great job with this big, huge elephant that hopefully you won't ever have to deal with an elephant like that again, <laughs> hopefully. But if you do, then you've been your experience. So. <laughs> You could write a book. Maybe you should. <laughs> elephants I've known. No, just kidding. <laughs> but there are some other elephants that I think that we need to be aware of. And, and I, I bring these out because I think that um, when you've handled the one you have, you know, these are, are not easy. But I, the same way in which you've handled this elephant this past year, I think you can apply to some of these. And so... Um, these are really no new and nothing new. We all as Unitarians and as Americans deal with this first one. But that is racism. You know, many times we don't want to talk about it and yet it's very much in the room. And I, I um, just bring it up as an elephant that I encourage you to continue conversations just to, as you had about this other elephant about this one. And the next one would be engagement. Obviously, you were engaged, you know, and, and I commend you for that and, and just say that, you know, there are many, many opportunities for engagement, so continue to be engaged. Because what you showed is through your engagement, the strength really is in the community. You know, a couple of years ago when the news that Melissa was leaving and I was at SI, um, I kept saying, Ministers come, ministers go, but the congregation stays. And it's through that engagement as a congregation that you continue to grow. So continue to be engaged. 
I know you're tired and you want to just go, oh. and when Reverend Stephen comes here, you go, okay, he's here, yay. <laughs> but he also needs your engagement and he will bless you in ways, I'm sure, that you can't even imagine. Another one that we don't want to talk about in our, in our church is economic inequality. You know, there's always the haves and the haves not. And I think it's important to have those conversations as well. And then white privilege, really understanding what that is. And that it is, allows us, once we begin to understand that, to open our, open our hearts and our minds to what others who are less fortunate than us, who are people of color, um, deal with on a regular basis. And then the rise of the Me Too um, is also important. So um, these are just some of the elephants that I identified. And of course, I identified the big elephant. But um, in your order of service, you had one of these. And now I ask you to take a few moments and it says, my elephant in the room is, and I commit to. And it basically, what we'll do is, that, is just write it down and tell us what you're going to do. And then we'll um, have the ushers come forward uh, during the offering and pass them in. And Jerry, will you then take and post them in the back? So that at the end of the service, we'll, the back wall there, we'll have um, some of our elephants in the room. And um, just remember that as you write about your own elephant, that you've got, don't put your name on the paper, but you've got this whole congregation of people who are here to support and here to help you and all to move forward and increase in love. So take a few minutes, write down what your elephant in the room is and then what you want to do about it. Just as we avoid talking about elephants in the room, we can learn a, a lot from the actual behavior of elephants. And when elephants meet, they hold out their trunks as a form of greeting. And elephants show concern when a member of their group is sick. The adult elephant clusters around to watch over and to protect the sick elephant. And elephants communicate to each other about their feelings by the sounds that they make. And so my challenge to you is that take joy in the fact that you know how to take care of an elephant that's in the room. And relish that and use what you have learned from that experience this past year to continue to grow and to tackle the other elephants which are around us and amongst us in this congregation. I applaud you. I thank you for the lives that you live, for the part of you that I have here and will always have here in my heart, for the things that you taught me about how to be a minister. And I'm learning how to be a better minister based on the foundation that I received here. So I thank you, I love you, and I send you 
Aho, which is basically greetings from my congregation in Cape Town, South Africa. Maybe so. There's an old adage that there are always four truths in a situation. My truth, your truth, our truth, and the truth. Tell a story often enough and the boundaries of facts, fact and fiction will often blur and become reality, at least for the storyteller. Often we all see the initial truth, the elephant in the room, but we struggle to name it. We struggle to resolve it. And so we learn to live with it. And there is a great New York cartoon showing a couple sitting in a room. An elephant is answering the phone, and the quote is, no, this is the elephant. <laughs> May all of you continue to communicate and be aware of your own elephants that are in the room. Name them and continue to deal with them. May it be so.